study group. To prepare for our big book study, let's get focused by having a three-minute moment of silent meditation followed by the bog light prayer. Good evening, everyone. I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Chris. Hey, Chris. I'm a recovered alcoholic, and my name is Rob. Thanks for joining us tonight. We're going to start the meditation in a minute, so please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noise or will distract others for the duration of the meeting. The coffee area will be closed for this portion of the meeting so as to minimize distractions. Also, 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 please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. For the meditation, some suggestions are focus on breath and posture. Breathe in God, breathe out self. Take this time to get reconnected to God. Let the craziness of your day drift away and ask God to help you focus on the study tonight. Is everybody ready for the meditation? If so, we'll go ahead and take the lights down and bring in the monks. So ready. Thank you. 
please join us in the fog light prayer. If you don't know it, just mumble along. God, God, God let your love shine through me us like a fog light so those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. All right, let's have Tanisha up for our secretary's report. Tanisha. My name is Tanisha, and I'm your recovered alcoholic secretary. Hey, Tanisha. In keeping with the seventh tradition, which states, every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going around. And I've asked Ronnie to read the recovered statement. We read this notice to explain why many people in this group identify as recovered rather than recovering, and what it exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. I'm Ronnie. I'm an alcoholic. Ronnie. Uh, Recovered. We are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered but not cured? That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime. But we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Nineteen forty style big book sponsorship from forward to second edition Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, fifty percent got sobered at once and remained that way. Twenty five percent sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, came to believe and experiences that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75% success rate. In the back, we have CDs, mugs, large print big books, the little red books, and big book dictionaries for sale. Another um, thing is, if you um, would like to contribute or make a contribution, um, we not only um, accept cash. We also have Venmo and we can also swipe cards just so that you know. We meet every Monday promptly at 715 and we ask that you be courteous and ready to begin at the Road to Recovery Tune. See you next week. From the forward to the first edition of Alcoholics Anonymous, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book and of this group. From There is a Solution, also from the big book, the tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. This is an open meeting, and as such, all who have an interest in alcoholism and our program of recovery are welcome. Because this is an open meeting, you need not identify yourself nor your reason for being here if you do not wish to do so. Your anonymity will be protected. We ask that you protect ours. And on the topic of anonymity, uh, if you do not want to be on the Internet, this podcast is actually, this meeting is podcast on the Internet. So disguise your voice, make a fun accent, or just pass that microphone when the Q&A portion comes around. Can we have a show of hands of people joining us for the first time? 
All right. Welcome. And then a show of hands of recovered alcoholics. All right. Very cool. If you're new, grab one of these people with their hands up. They can show you a way to this uh, new freedom. While this is an open meeting, membership in this group is limited to those who wish to recover from alcoholism and have a desire to stop drinking for good and all. Each member of Alcoholics Anonymous is a potential sponsor of a new member and should clearly recognize the obligations and duties of such a responsibility. Is anyone in need of a big book? Raise your hand. Anybody sure. not get a big book? Oh, greeters are killing it. All right. Awesome. Before we begin our study of the big book, last week we, we reviewed... Well, do you want to introduce our traditionist? Oh, I would love to. Okay, please. We reviewed, I think it was Tradition 4. All right, so we're going to be uh, on Tradition 5. Please refer to the unabridged big book page 562 in the abridged, the little skinny one, uh, page 177. And here to guide us with his experience is Mr. John. Let's welcome him. Cool. Thank you, guys. Uh, my name is John. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Hey, John. Um, yeah, so Tradition 5. Uh, it's uh, 178, like Robert said. It's a short form, and then we're going to read the long form on 179 on the abridged. Um, okay, Tradition 5. Each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the alcoholic who still suffers. Um, that's the short form. The long form is... Um, each alcoholics anonymous group ought to be a spiritual entity having but one primary purpose, that of carrying its message to the alcoholic who still suffers. Um, here's a little history and some stuff that, some notes that were passed down to me. Um, so according to the 12 and 12, the theme of tradition five is that it's better to do one thing supremely well than many things badly. The very life of our fellowship requires a preservation of this principle. This brings to mind a story that I read while I was preparing for Tradition 4. There was an AA group that tried to do a bit more than they were able to, to, but offering money and education to alcoholics in need. While this certainly seems like a worthy cause, it's eventually brought the group in question to its knees, thus thus giving us our beloved Rule 62, don't take yourself so damn seriously. So with that being said, I think that this tradition is pretty straightforward, and it's best not to try and overthink it. As ex-problem drinkers, we have been placed in a position to help the alcoholic who still suffers in a way that no other person can. In every chapter of the big book, it says in one way or another that the only way to ensure sobriety is intensive work with other alcoholics. Um, So while this tradition protects the unity of the AA groups, it seems like it plays a big part in protecting the individual alcoholic as well. Because for us, to drink is to die. And if I try to keep what is so freely given to me, I'm sure to drink. Thank you. In order to help us stay focused as we study the big book, we use the big book study guide prepared by Joe and Charlie and Krusty Cliff of the Dallas Primary Purpose Group. And right now, it's my favorite part of the meeting. We get to introduce Mike S., our reader. So Mike S., come on up to the stage, All please. All right. And tonight, we're going to begin on page XX. IV in the doctor's opinion, and that's in the skinny version, and in the, uh, the fatty patty, it's page XXVI, so it's just an IV and a VI transposed in the different versions. Okay. That's where we're going to begin. Mike's going to read it. Uh, after the page is read, we are going to ask questions from the podium, uh, starting at the back of top of the page of whatever he just said. The answers will be one sentence unless otherwise specified, and multi-part questions are simply a one-sentence answer. 
split up by commas, semicolons, hyphens, and other fun bits of punctuation. Basically, in English, what that means is that we're going to read the material once through and then re-dissect the information a second time through the question and answer format. Notice how the language in the questions gives us a new light in which to consider the material. This is important because hearing the question and rereading the content offers a definite way of comprehending the material covered. After we've completed the page, we'll open up for comments, questions, and observations based on what was just read. If you have spiritual experiences with this information, you are free to share. However, big book study is not therapy. Should you begin sharing about topics which are more appropriately discussed in a different, i.e. sponsorship setting, please do not be offended when my guest here cuts that conversation short. For that purpose, we have fellowship meetings before and after our study time. Gangster. Look at that grin. You can never go wrong by commenting on the page, which brings us, up, uh, brings us to the words of one of the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, sobriety, freedom from alcohol through the teaching and practice of the 12 steps is the sole purpose of any Alcoholics Anonymous group. So tonight we're starting off three pages into the doctor's opinion, but we didn't just decide to open the book here. Did we? We, uh, we actually started. Who here has been with us since the very beginning of our journey through the big book? Anybody? All right. Excellent. So we're, we're, uh, we're, we're making our way through. And do you want to recap a little bit? I would love Should to. So uh, we, we went through the forwards and uh, preface, and we learned uh, about the early fellowship and uh, how Alcoholics Anonymous came to be. It shares with us some of the history, some of the early recovery rates that we already uh, shared here tonight as well as you know, some exposure to the spiritual solution and exposure to our traditions before they were actually born. We get to some interesting statistics about how the fellowship has grown over the years and what um, the creation of this book did uh, to the expansion of the fellowship. And then we, we read the first couple pages of the doctor's opinion um, last week, and we talked about Dr. William D. Silkworth, specializing in the treatment of alcoholic and drug addiction at Towns Hospital in New York City. Uh, we covered some, some pretty cool material, and it actually did reference back to the preface in the forwards when they talked about Bill Wilson uh, being a patient there for, and getting the opportunity to present his conception to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. And so here we are. We're in the doctor's opinion. XXIV in the skinny version, XXVI in the big version. And then Mike is... Where do you want to tee up? Take yeah, us away. So XXIV, and they're going to start reading. And actually, should we tee up a little bit? Maybe we tee up uh, the Dr. Wrights. Why don't we start there? The Dr. Wrights. The subject presented in this book seems to me to be of paramount importance to those afflicted with alcoholic addiction. I say this after many years' experience as medical director of one of the oldest hospitals in the country treating alcoholic and drug addiction. There was therefore a sense of real satisfaction when I was asked to contribute a few words on a subject which is covered in such masterly detail in these pages. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but is its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. Many years ago, one of the leading contributors to this book came under our care in this hospital, and while here, he acquired some ideas which he put into practical application at once. 
Later, he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients here, and with some misgiving, we consented. The cases we have followed through have been most interesting. In fact, many of them are amazing. The unselfishness of these men, as we have come to know them, the entire absence of profit motive, and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and wearily in this alcoholic field. They believe in themselves and still more in the power which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor, and this requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. And this is where we're going to start our study tonight. We believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is manifestation of an allergy. That the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. If, if any feel that as psychiatrists directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental, let them stand with us a while on the firing line. See the tragedies the despairing wives, the little children. Let the solving of these problems become a part of their daily work and even of their sleeping moments. And the most cynical will not wonder that we have accepted and encouraged this movement. We feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement now growing up among them. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented, unless they can again experience a sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks which they see others take without impunity. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through, a well-known, through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful, with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience the entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. On the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of even ever solving them, suddenly finds himself 
himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol, the only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. Men have cried out to me in sincere and despairing appeal. Doctor, I cannot go on like this. I have everything to live for. I must stop, but I cannot. You must help me. Faced with this problem, if a doctor is honest with himself, he must sometimes feel his own inadequacy. Although he gives all that is in him, it often is not enough. One feels that something more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change. Though the aggregate of recoveries resulting from psychiatric effort is considerable, we physicians must admit we have made little impression upon the problem as a whole. Many types do not respond to the ordinary psychological approach. I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. I have had many men who had, for example, worked a period of months on some problem or business deal which was to be settled on a certain date favorable to them. They took a drink a day or so prior to the date, and then the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all their, to all other interests so that the important appointment was not met. These men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. There are many situations which arise out of the phenomenon of craving which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. All right, we're going to stop there. Uh, a lot of good stuff in those pages. So uh, we're going to start our question and answer. Do you want to run or you want to ask? It's up I'll to you. Run. Okay. All right. Thanks, Mike. Right, so we're, stop, we're starting uh, on the top of page XXIV in the skinny version and the paragraph, We Believe. So what did Dr. Silkworth believe was the cause of the alcoholic's out-of-control drinking, powerlessness, and does this phenomenon exist with normal drinkers? We believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. How much alcohol can a real alcoholic safely use? And once the alcoholic has passed into the hopeless state, what happens? These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having, once having, Jesus, and once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon humans, upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Next paragraph. Can emotional pleading help an alcoholic to see the truth? Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. What type of message can help an alcoholic? The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. Two-part question. In what must an alcoholic's ideals be grounded? And since alcoholism destroys lives, what can happen if our ideals are grounded in a higher power? In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. Next paragraph. What would cause psychiatrists to accept and recommend the AA program? If any feel that as psychiatrists directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental, let them stand with us for a while on the firing line. See the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children. What did Dr. Silkworth believe could do a more effective job in helping alcoholics? 
Let the solving of these problems know. We feel, after many years of experience, that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement now growing up among them. Why do men and women drink? Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. And you're going to read, I think you're going to read the, oh no, never mind. If you, and comments, if you go to pages 83 and 84 and put the words, when I had a few drinks in front of the ninth step promises, you'll be able to recognize the effect the alcoholic gets from the first few drinks. So should we do that now? What do you say? Page 83 and 84. So we're going to go, we're going to see why men and women drink. So we're going to page 83. We're going to look at our ninth step promises. And we're putting the words, when I had a few drinks in front. So when I had a few drinks, I was amazed before I was halfway through. When I had a few drinks, I was getting to know a new freedom and a new happiness. When I had a few drinks, I would not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. When I had a few drinks, I would comprehend the word serenity and I would know peace. When I had a few drinks... No matter how far down the scale I had gone, I would see how my experience could benefit others. When I'd had a few drinks, that feeling of uselessness and self-pity would disappear. When I had a few drinks, I would lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in my fellows. And uh, when, when I had a few drinks, my whole attitude and outlook upon life changed. Fear of people and of economic security left me. And I intuitively knew how to handle situations which used to baffle me. So that kind of hints at, at, okay, all right, that's why men and women drink, because I liked that effect produced. Next question. Three-part question for Alan. Does the alcoholic understand why he drinks? Does drinking cause problems or injuries, as Dr. Silkworth terms them? And what is the real problem with the alcoholic? The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. All right. What happens after the alcoholic succumbs to the desire for a few drinks? After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with the firm resolution not to drink again. How well does the alcoholic manage the resolution to never take another drink and to be successful in sobriety? What must, what must the alcoholic experience? This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. Next paragraph. Once an alcoholic experienced an entire psychic change, what happens and what is necessary for this to happen? On the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand once a psychic change has occurred the very same person who seemed doomed who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol the only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules could the few simple rules be the 12 steps i wonder next paragraph what did the men who cried out to dr silkworth plead for men have cried out to me in sincere and despairing appeal doctor I cannot go on like this. I have everything to live for. I must stop, but I cannot. You must help me. Next paragraph. Do doctors, if they are honest with themselves, feel adequate in dealing with alcoholics? Faced with this problem, if a doctor is honest with himself, he must sometimes feel his own inadequacy. Although he gives all that is in him, it is often not enough. One what? feels that something more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change. 
all right? And that, that question was, what can human power not do? We've got a two-part question. What can psychiatric, can psychiatric efforts help a serious hard drinker and have medicine and psychiatry made much progress in treating chronic alcoholics? Though the aggregate of recoveries resulting from psychiatric effort is considerable, we physicians must admit we have made little impression upon the problem as a whole. Do real, chronic alcoholics respond to ordinary psychological treatment? Many types do not respond to the ordinary psychological approach. Next paragraph. Did Dr. Silkworth believe that a real alcoholic could recover by mental control? I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. Note, this is followed by the unmanageability and powerlessness. In his example, was the alcoholic having a bad time? I have been, oh, holy diddly do. I have had many men who, for example, worked a period of months on some problem or business deal, which is to be settled on a certain date favorable to them. What insane act did he carry out? And as the result of taking the drink, what happened? They took a day, a drink or so prior to the date, then the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interests so that the important appointment was not met. And we got a note on manageability and powerlessness. So do real alcoholics drink to escape? These men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. Next paragraph. What do many alcoholics do to stop drinking? There are many situations which arise out of the phenomenon of craving which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. All right. That's the end of the, the Q&A session, section. So the page is open for comment. Does anyone have experience with this material, experience in sobriety reading this with your sponsor, with your sponsees? Anyone, uh, anyone want to comment about unmanageability and powerlessness? I know, um, yeah, I mean, this is something that we like to put in the first person, right? Why do I drink? Why'd you do it? You know, that's the, the famous question. Well, I drink essentially because I like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation so elusive that while I admit it is injurious, I cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To me, my alcoholic life seems the only normal one. I'm restless, irritable, and discontented. Unless, unless what? Unless I can again experience that sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks. And it's drinks that I see others taking with impunity. Like, I feel like my mom would drink like a half a glass of wine. And I'll be like, that's impunity. You know, like she doesn't go to jail. She doesn't beat anybody up or get beat up or any, any of that stuff, you know? So, and uh, I pass through these well-known stages of a spree, and it's always remorse. It's always like, all right, I'm done, you know, and, and it, it all kind of, the book kind of connects with itself, right? Because it says, um, we make many firm resolutions, but never a decision. That's something that, that's said later. And it's like here, so I pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. And it's repeated over and over again. And unless, what's the solution? I have to experience an entire psychic change an entire change of, of mind and heart and spirit. And, uh, and unless I can do that, there's very little hope in my recovery. And, you know, I, don't, I think I'm still kind of understanding what this means, honestly. It, this is pretty, pretty immense if, you know, if you start to get into it, don't you think? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, like you said, firm resolution, like it's not, this is not a program for people who want it or people who need it. It's a program for people who do it, right? So we get the results of putting in the work. We can even flip that part that you just read uh, a different way and say men and women uh, get sober essentially because they love the effect that, at least for me, produced by God. Mm. You know, the the sensation um, is not injurious, but if we go down here, it says I could be restless, irritable, and discontented, and that help that happens for me if I stop doing the things that I'm supposed to do in sobriety. I can get right back there real quick, um, but then I can again experience that sense of ease and comfort, which comes in sobriety through God by prayer, by meditation, and by helping another alcoholic. You know that's my solution today. And it says you know their their alcoholic life is the only normal one. That was it for me. You know, I didn't, I couldn't imagine life with or without alcohol. You know, at the, it talks about it in the vision for you. Like, I just thought, you know, sobriety was just going to be this boring, like, you know, whatever, like a terrible, terrible life sentence that I was going to have to go through if I ever got sober. Like, if I knew how amazing sobriety was when I was out there still drinking, like, I probably would have gotten sober a lot sooner. But we got to go through what we go through to get here. And then, uh, we can appreciate it once we get free through this work. So it's pretty amazing stuff. We had a we had a hand up here with Andre. Yeah, Dr. Dre. Hey, Andre, recovered alcoholic. Hey, Andre. I mean, and um, you know, I can absolutely identify with the uh, with the pain of um, you know one line here um, where it says a frothy emo- emotional appeal seldom suffices. Um, so for me, that was uh, that was I have years and years of experience with. Um, you know, with uh, with mothers and fathers um, who would um, just look at me with disappointment and and sorrow. Um, you know, and just just what you know. I used to think I was unlucky. Um, you know, I kept getting caught. You know, I get all these DUIs. Um, you know, my grandmother put it in my head that I was just an unlucky person. Um, yeah, you know, and I actually believed that for a long time until I actually came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, and realized it had nothing to do with luck. It had something to do with, um, you know, my disease. And, um, <clears throat> you know, because um, there have been many, many times where, you know, um, you know, mom and dad have been worried sick about me. Um, you know, I haven't been home in a couple days, you know, not answering any of the phone calls. You know, they're worried sick. All they want to do is just, all they want is a, a, a simple reply saying, hey, I'm alive. That's it. And um, I couldn't even afford them the courtesy of doing that. Um, and then when I get home and I, you know, I know it, I know I'd have to face it, you know, um, it wouldn't matter to me. I wouldn't care. Um, you know, that look on their face, I didn't care. Um, whatever I was doing to them, you know, the sleepless nights, I didn't care about any of that stuff. Um, you know, nothing you do or say is going to get me sober, no matter how much I need it, you know, no matter how far down my life is going, um, Nothing you do or say. The only thing that got me sober was um, was the grace of God. So, uh, so thank you guys. Thank you. Thanks for sharing. All right, we got a hand. Hi, recovered alcoholic named Kelly. Hey, Kelly. Um, this is really holding my attention. Where it says, "I do not hold with those." who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. I've had many men who had, for example, worked a period of months 
on some problem or business deal which was to be settled on a certain date favorably to them. They took a drink a day or so prior to the date. And then the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interests so that the important appointment was not met. These men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. And there are many situations which arise out of the phenomenon of craving which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. And I really strongly relate to that because as my alcoholism was ramping up and ramping up and ramping up, um, I didn't have the benefit of the knowledge of this program. So I had absolutely no idea that I was drinking to overcome this phenomenon of craving. And I would have small periods small periods of abstinence where I was 100% restless, irritable, and discontent. Again, no benefit of the program or the solution. And, you know, after a certain little period of, of white-knuckling it, I would take a drink a day prior to building up a new career, you know, a new job, trying to re- restart my life again. And then all of a sudden that phenomenon of craving would overtake Everything. There was nothing else in the world that I could do about it besides go drink. And nothing else was important. Frothy emotional peel meant nothing to me. I didn't care about my parents, my loved ones. I went and isolated and drank. And, you know, it got so bad that there are many situations which arise out of the phenomenon of craving which cause men to make that supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. And I attempted that very, very seriously. I woke up and I said, oh my God, I cannot do this anymore. I cannot continue this groundhog day alcoholic torture. I can't. You know, and only God saw fit to not allow that to happen. And that was actually the point in which I came and surrendered. It took that for this alcoholic like to be willing to surrender and find out what was really wrong with me. But, you know, thank God for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and God in that restless, irritable, and discontent. I don't know who just said that. Andre did. I can find that real easy if I don't continue to, to stay in my prayer and in my, in, in my program. And, you know, today I, I choose not to go there. I don't like that feeling of restless, irritable, discontent. And I know what the answer to it is. So I have to stay disciplined and stay in this plan of action. And it, it's changed my life completely. Thanks for sharing. We got a we got a couple of hands. All right. Hey, I'm Ryan. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Ryan. Um, so I I love this chapter. I I love that paragraph that you read in the first person. And I remember the first time that I did that with my sponsor. Um, it was the first time that I felt like I was actually reading what was wrong with me. Um, but one another paragraph that I love in the part that we just read uh, is, is the paragraph right before that, um, where. Like I kind of wish that like I could have known Doctor Silkworth because I feel like this is kind of a part where like he's kind of getting a little badass and like calling people out um, and being like you know like if you think that I'm weak for like or being sentimental or you know like like because I mean I'm sure this was hard you know this was hard for him and he's this was his life's work was working with these alcoholics and he's realizing that nothing that he's going to do is going to fix them um, and. Like, he's sitting here saying, like, if it seems like he's sentimental, it's actually the opposite of that. He did the strongest thing that he could have done, and he admitted that, you know? And he gave us he gave us something, a gift that, like, we still have today. 
Um, so I, I just love that. I love, like, I don't know, this whole, this whole chapter is just amazing to me. So thank you. Thanks for sharing. Hi, recovered alcoholic Mike Chase. Hey, Mike Chase. Every time I read the doctor's opinion, a couple of things go through my mind. First of all, it mentions two times that the phenomenon of craving needs to be over before we can actually put this into play to make any use of it. Hence, it's really no good to have somebody read the big book while they're still drunken in the phenomenon of craving because it's going to go one ear out, the other won't make any sense. And through my own experience... Trying to read the big book when I'm still mocus and coming off of a run, I don't remember squat diddly do in it other than I'm sick and I need help. And I made that up because I never finished the chapter. I just lied to my first sponsor like that. So I got to realize what was the purpose of this and when and how was this written? This was one of the first things that they had written. They had reached out to Dr. Silky and said, hey, listen, we're putting this book together. Can you throw some together for us? And he took from what he saw and wrote up this doctor's opinion, the two parts there was a definite distinguish between the two types of phases of treating the alcoholic. His phase was the detoxification, the bringing them back to health. It was besides getting them past the, ph- the phenomenon of craving, it was returning them to a physical state of health where their brains are heavy, healthier, their bodies are healthier, so they can start to get on with their life. And then he had us step in. And there was no diluted... You know, let's put him for rehab for another 30 days to help him discover his inner problems and then let us get used to them. It's get healthy in a a detox, and then he turned them over to us. And there was no psychobabble once he he turned us over to us. It was God. There was no mistake, and he was turning these guys over to these fanatical people who had found a solution to alcoholism through a God. Now, it was the Oxford group, God, so there was no messing around what it was all about. And that's the results he saw. He didn't see the results of, you know, people doing middle-of-the-road stuff. He saw the results of the people doing what actually had to do, which is clean house, help others, and seek God. In the part where he starts going, men have cried out to me with sincere and despairing appeal. Doctor, I can't go on like this. I have everything to live for. I must stop. I can't, but you must help me. This is a guy who saw his limitations. The medical field was, a, was about getting us detox and getting us healthy. And then turning us over, not to work out my emotional issues, not to read a bunch of other books, but to seek God in a quick, rapid form and to learn how to help others really rapidly. And that's what he saw. That's what he stood behind. You know, and if we want to have success rates like he had back then, we need to sort of go back to what they did back in the old days. Clean house, help others, and seek God. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. If you want what we have to offer and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, we've got a, we got a hand over here. John, recovered alcoholic. John. Um, I was just reading a line in here, and it says, uh, this is repeated over and over. Unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. Um, I remember I was like, I don't know, I had just been, I was really messed up, man. And uh, I remember waking up the next morning and um, just having all these thoughts of like committing suicide and just like, how I was going to kill myself without having hurting anybody else in my family or, or the, less, the least painful way for me. And 
all these things were just like going through my head, and then all of a sudden I just started crying because I realized I didn't have the balls to kill myself, and um, and that I really didn't want to hurt anybody in my family through me being gone. Um, and um, <clears throat> it just says, like it says here, is that part of my life was repeated over and over again. I would come off a run, and I'd be like, "Fuck, man, I gotta fucking, I gotta kill myself." Like, there's, like, no way I can keep doing this. And then one day I was like, okay. I remember crying profusely, and I couldn't stop crying. And I got on my knees. I wasn't, I didn't go to church. I didn't do, I didn't really believe in God. Like, I knew there was a God, but I didn't really, I thought he just left me and abandoned me because whatever, because I was so messed up. And I remember sitting in my garage one day crying, and I just got on my knees, and I said, God, you either kill me, and I, like, Say more vulgar than that, but I said, "You either kill me or you make me better." <clears throat> and um, and things started changing, like little by little. Like it's crazy. Like the people that I met and like the things that started happening were just like, like wow. Like it was just crazy. And I was just, I guess, I feel like from that day forward, it was just like my my life's been different. The minute I chose to to do something about it and ask for help was the day that I guess things started changing. And, um, and yeah, and it's the only thing that I knew how to do was just scream at God. So that's what I did, asking him for help. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, I've heard speakers talk about, like, um, like the, the spiritual experience before the spiritual experience. And it's like, how else do you explain me you know, living the way that I was living to all of a sudden not living like that, but instead going to meetings, uh, seeking out sponsors, reading big books, sharing my feelings with other men, like my sponsor. Uh, all, like, that's my mini spirit, spiritual experience and God's grace that got me to the point of like, all right, let's do this work and get you uh, the heavy duty, extra strength spiritual experience that comes uh, from doing this. I can remember when I first started reading this in the doctor's opinion, you know, I, I was sponsorless at the time, but my cousin was about a couple months ahead of me in this journey. And, and he said, Hey, I want you to read doctor's opinion and call me. And, um, so I did that. And, you know, like Mike said, I was only absorbing bits and pieces, but I remember reading this and like, I knew that I was an alcoholic, but I didn't know what that meant. You know, I knew that when I started drinking, I didn't stop, you know, when, when we would go out with friends, uh, you know, the friends would like, we're getting a little bit older, you know, the friends would, uh, leave and, and go home by like 12, be nice, responsible adults. And, you know, I had every intention of doing that, but then like I wake up in the morning, like on my floor somewhere, I was a big blackout drinker and I've got all these receipts to places that I have no recollection of being at all. You know, just like I didn't, I couldn't stop at that time. I, you know, I didn't stop until I passed out or ran out. And, um, you know, or these, you know, I'd go out with my fancy friends and we'd do one of these wine tastings and they'd be like, all right, well, cool. We got, you know, a little buzz. I think I'm going to take a nap and, you know, maybe we'll go out for dinner tonight. I'm like, no, like, <laughs> where are we going now? Like, there's no, you know, there's no stopping at this point. Um, but I didn't understand what that was until I read this and I learned about the, uh, the phenomenon of craving, you know, and, and I always felt less than from, you know, this disease. And, and I realized when I got here and reading this with a sponsor that we're not less than, we're not bad people, we're just sick people, right? And we have this condition that does not occur in the average temperate drinker. 
we are different than the average temperate drinker. It's not a problem of my willpower. I accomplished a lot of things in my life uh, through willpower, but this was the one that licked me because I am bodily different than my fellows, you know, and I have this obsession of mine that develops that I cannot overcome to stop me from taking that first drink. You know, the uh, lucky I had good sponsorship when I got here because I, I would hear things in, in meetings like, just don't drink and go to meetings. Mm. And he'd be like, well, you know, if you could do that, why are you here? You know, like that, that doesn't work for me. Um, I hope you got more than that because uh, I couldn't do that on my own. Mm. You know, I had every intention of stopping drinking and making that choice to stop drinking over and over again. But it never lasted, you know, only but sometimes a couple of days. Yeah. You know. Yeah, that that froth that's a frothy emotional appeal that does, doesn't suffice, and that and that's kind of what I got. You know, it's like my sponsor uh, up in Maryland was asking me why when I kept relapsing, he said, you know, you got to get a, fill out a meeting sheet, go to some more meetings, and then give me the meeting sheet to prove that you're going to them. And that that was kind of like he was getting emotional just watching me slide in, into oblivion, and and he was like, man, you know, you got to just go to some more meetings, and it's like, well, that's a frothy emotional appeal, and it says here it seldom suffices. And the message that, that does suffice, the message that can interest me, has to have depth and weight. And what is that message? The message is, well, I know what sober feels like. I, like, I hated the way sober felt my whole life, even before I discovered the first drink, right? And Pat, who's doing an amazing step series on Thursday, he talks about he could have used a drink when he, had five, when he was five or six, right? And uh, so I remember what being sober felt like, and it wasn't good. I never liked it, never, never did enjoy being sober. And so the message that had depth and weight was, hey, man, you can transform. You know, God's grace can enter your heart and you can stand in the sunlight of the spirit and experience joy. Like joy is different than happiness, right? Doc talks about the differences between joy and happiness and comfort and grace. And there's a lot of really cool stuff that you can experience. You can experience the presence of your creator. And like that has some weight. You can help other people. You can be useful. Like I had another, does anyone else have an emotional appeal, a frothy emotional appeal that didn't didn't suffice. Like I, I know I had one from, I used to be married. I have an ex-wife now. And she, uh, she said, she said, if you, she said, if you keep drinking, uh, if you keep drinking, I'm going to divorce you. And I, and I, okay, you're, you're going to have to divorce me then. And, uh, I, you know, yeah. she made good on it. She did. It was about a year and a half after recovered alcoholic Mike Chase. Um, I'm a frothy emotional appeal. Um, Sitting in detox, sitting in IOP once again with a bunch of people who were there not wanting to get sober but just there to court papers and stuff like that. And after n- nine months of IOP, they finally caught me sneaking on weekends drinking, and, um, which I'd been doing the whole time. And uh, <laughs> she looked at me with just shock and awe. And her first is like, how could you let all these people down? <laughs> And I just looked around the room, and I can't say what I thought, but you guys can imagine. It's like, I don't about these people, you know? It was not a connection other than accountability, show up and listen to everybody complain about their days, and I was not being brought to God through a program of Alcoholics Anonymous. They were delaying me to get to God through a program of Alcoholics Anonymous because they had me going to four nights a week, and I was just so darn busy doing that stuff, so... Yeah, that was my frothy emotional appeal. How dare I let everybody down? So. It reminds me of uh, Dr. Bob's nightmare when he's talking about, I lived my life without regard for the rights, wishes, or privileges of anyone else but myself. It's like, so you think I care about all these people? <laughs>
Anyone else want to comment or share on your experience with this? We got a couple oh. in the back. Yes. Because we got some, some people on the podcast that, that are, are going right. to want to hear you. <laughs> uh, I keep hearing uh, the frothy. My name's Anthony. I'm an alcoholic. Anthony. Uh, I keep hearing you guys mention the frothy emotional appeal seldom, fice, mm-hmm. seldom suffices, and I don't understand what that means whatsoever. So if maybe you could explain that to me so I can understand what you guys are speaking. Yeah, sure thing. Does anyone want to explain? Like yeah, so she said, if, if you don't stop drinking, we're getting a divorce. Like, you have to stop drinking for me or for your kids or for the marriage. And You do it if you love me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like... Like, I got blackout drunk at my cousin's funeral and the, the wake and just made a fool of myself and threatened my family. And my mom was, like, just disgusted. And, and the next day, she was like, oh, you can never do that again. If I even tell you what you did, you'd never drink again. And she started to tell me, and I started to tear up. And needless to say, I got drunk again a few hundred thousand more times. So, What if we- Grandma never sees you get sober? <laughs> The, uh, the frothy emotional appeal that the one... That, oh, I'm Tim. I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. Uh, the frothy emotional appeal, uh, that when I read that with somebody, that like sticks with me is like the worst one that I can remember is my mom begging me to stop, and she's like, you're going to die if you don't, and if you're going to continue on, I need you to sign this life insurance policy. I took it out of her hand, I signed it, and I looked up, and she was bawling. But I was at a point where I'm like, that's it, I can't. Like, I'm prepared to die, so you can, you can do what you got to do. And uh, thank God it's been uh, many years of making those amends, and I'm, it's just the relationship's great now, but that, uh, that one there sticks with me a lot. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for sharing. I think we, I saw Jeff sand in the back there, too. An alcoholic named Lucy. God, so I just got sober like a week ago. Um, but I remember the first three days after my body was finally done detoxing, all I could think about was how bad I wanted to die. And now, like, I'm finally content with myself. And, like, I'm at peace. And so... I don't know, but on the topic of frothy emotional appeal, I remember I was going through a really bad breakup, and um, first thing I did was got blackout drunk, and my ex had texted me saying, I no longer have love for you, and I was freaking out, wondering what I had done, so I go to check my Snapchat, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, pretty sure everybody could, um, and so he pretty much, it was either I stopped drinking or... He never talked to me again. Needless to say, he never talked to me again. And yeah, that's it. Thanks for letting me share. Thanks for sharing. Welcome. Our best days are still ahead of us. No? Oh, okay. Hey, Jess. Hi. I'm Jess Cohn, recovered alcoholic. This is super strong. Too super strong. Okay, so one that I was talking about earlier, thinking about, was that important appointment that was not met. So, like, okay, before I'm treated, however, 
is which is going through the 12 steps and having a complete psychic change. I can normally show up at these appointments. However, since I have, you know, while I'm early recovery and I'm trying to, you know, go get a job or I got to go to court or I'm having a feeling on the way to court and then I'm just kind of like, hmm, you know, maybe I'll just, you know, take a little bit of shot of vodka or something or like a beer in the Publix on my way there so I could calm down, you know, and then I'll be all right, you know, and then that phenomenon of craving kicks in. I'm like, hmm, I'll be right back, you know, like, and there's no coming back, you know, and then I don't show up for court or um, just like that, like show up for my mom or I'm so excited. Like one time I was in halfway and this is kind of, okay, so I used to prostitute which is so shocking, I know. And, and, like, I am leaving halfway, and for some reason, like, when you're at these little bus stops and you're trying to get to the bus terminal and you're trying to do the right thing, you know, tricks still drive by, and they want to pick you up, and they want to offer you money, and they want to do stuff for you. And, and I'm like, you know, we're broke. We're, like, out here, and we're trying to do the right thing, but there's that little demon driving by, you know, and this guy drove by, and he was... I was like, I can't do this. I just can't, you know. And he said, well, just get in. I'll give you a ride. And then it wasn't five minutes later. He pulled a pipe out, and there we go. You know, Jessica's not going to meet her dad for her birthday, his birthday party at the restaurant down down in Pompano. She's out smoking crack again, you know. So it's horrible. It's a very horrible thing, but it happens that fast. And that's what scares me. Like, even when, even when, like, um... You know, I'm at work, and I'm working overtime and stuff like that, and I finally sit down, and I'm thinking, and my body's throbbing, and I'm like, God, that, you know, just, let me just get one, you know, that lie, and, you know, easily driving, and then the car goes to the right, and says, mm, I wonder how they're doing, I, you know, I'm just going to say hi, you know, like, I'm sure that they're missing me, you know. <laughs> And then it's not two, three weeks later, I'm, you know, I have no car, <laughs> no phone, no nothing. So it's, yeah, it's a beast. Sure is. Thanks for sharing. We got a hand over here. She put it down. Very good. Tanisha, recovered alcoholic. Hey, Tanisha. Yeah, I really love this part of the book. Um, it, like, as Ryan had mentioned, you know, it explains what's wrong with me. And um, I love it how it says supreme sacrifice. Um, there are many situations which arise out of the phenomenon of craving, which causes men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than to continue to fight. And um, that supreme sacrifice was admitting, you know, I was defeated and surrendering and calling upon my higher power to um, show up with me in court. And I purposely, like, woke up extra early that morning because I had saved a little some. Some had me a can of whatever drink. And, you know, that was breakfast every damn day. And um, I remember, like, stepping out onto the ledge and just, like, looking 
you know, over the Miami um, horizon facing east as the sun is rising. And I felt the presence of God. And um, I simply asked him, I said, please, I need you to show up. I need you to show up today. I need you to be right beside me. And um, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready to do this, Um, which is face the judge. I didn't even know I was going to, like, you know, fall into this whole, you know, brand new life that I've never experienced. Um, And to be the first of the family that I know of, you know, um, and it's such a great gift to me because I get to share it with others. And, you know, my sister along with me is um, now two months clean in Colorado, you know, and, and that's a miracle on its own, you know. Um, I also like what it says here, then there are types of entirely, there, then there are types entirely normal in every respect except in the effect alcohol has upon them. They are often able, intelligent, and friendly people. And I truly believe that about me. Um, I'm always a go-getter. I'm always, you know, you know, just putting myself out there so that another one can feel comfortable or, you know, taking shit off my back and giving it to you. Why not? You know, I didn't really care about it when I was out there drugging and drinking and stuff. And, you know, it's just, you know, the gratitude that I have for my creator that I'm able to show to others. If he's had, you know, gratitude, I mean, if he's had so much love for me to allow me to experience the gratitude of him, and I am able to share that with others and see the gratitude that he's, you know, just able to allow me to experience today sober, you know, that part. It's just an amazing feeling, you know, the phenomenon of craving, you know, that, that, that is some real, (laughs) real ish, you know, it's not easy. I'm not going to sit here and say that it's easy. Um, When I surrendered, I thought I had everything, you know, still under my will. I wanted to walk into court and I'm like, okay, I know that she's going to order me to inpatient. So let me go and outpatient. So that way I can, you know, show her that I really want this. But in all the sense, I wanted to do it my way. And um, I even like went into inpatient after I was in outpatient. And, you know, um, all of a sudden I cared about the infection that was on my leg. So I went into the hospital for 10 days just so that I can have my frequent visitors come through and, you know, drop gifts on me and stuff and, you know, get pampered and then return back and still like on my way crossing across the street of Biscayne Boulevard into, you know, our groups. I'll have one waiting for me at this restaurant and, you know, and and I would orchestrate this back into my will again to the point where I said, I got to leave. I got to leave. Because here I am, once again, in another program, doing it my way. Manipulating my counselor, manipulating, you know, the passes. You know, it's like I should have been in a lockdown facility. You know, you can't even trust me to cross the street because I have it all set up from the time I walk out that door. You know, and and the, the phenomenon of craving, you know, it hit, but... I had already, like, made up my mind when I returned home. 
because I, I just wanted to prove everyone wrong. I didn't. I wasn't there for the right reasons. I wanted to prove everyone wrong that you know I am somebody. I'm not a bad mother, you know, and um, and I can piss clean, you know, and I can piss I can piss clean and not even you know turn up dirty or anything, you know, the entire court case, you know, and that's you know what we call setting up reservations, but. You know, coming to the conclusion, you know, where I stand now, it's like God did for me definitely what I could not do for myself. He put the right sponsor in my path who was bringing in H&Is and coming to me rather me rather than me coming to her. And, you know, and it's those people that actually, you know, do the deal um, and sacrifice their time. Um but there's there's that something, you know, that I always, one feels that something more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change, you know, and that something, that something is a power greater than myself, which I choose to call God. And um, the more and more I leaned on to him, you know, I was, God, one, one month and 15 days clean, got the keys to a business, indoor cycling gym. I relapsed at another indoor cycling gym. So I'm like getting the second chance, you know, starting off with a dollar less than where I left off at, keeping my integrity, doing my best in my sense, making amends to the one that I messed up with. You know, shortly after, like two weeks after, I'm in the Hyundai Sonata, like doing Uber and everything, riding around and got a gas card, can go anywhere and everywhere. You know, and it's these things that just like, oh my goodness, I show up to my sponsor shaking, you know, to do step work. And I tell her in like the slightest voice, like, I got a brand new car. And I used to ride around on the bike, you know, and, and it's these things that, you know, God says, okay, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you this. Let me see what you do with it this time. And I'm going to give you this. Let me see what you do with it this time. You know, and those those small gifts of appreciation that I have for him today, you know, it's only but him that could have, you know, given me this psychic change to say, I can be somebody completely different than the way I've been living my life this whole damn time if I just give it a chance. And that it is the program of AA and the people that are within it. Thank you for letting me share. Thanks for sharing. What do you think, Rob? Should we uh, close her up? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So this is from uh, A Vision for You, page one. You're an amazing six, four. Oh, let's, uh, let's give Mike S. a round of applause for reading. Wow, 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 wow. Michael R. All right. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but you obviously cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and for countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. It is the practice of the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group for group member sponsors to introduce their new sponsees by presenting them with a sponsorship medallion. Would anybody like to introduce a sponsee? Anybody sponsoring anyone? Okay, we got, a, it is. We got a sponsor. 
in the sponsor season. Thanks for doing all the hard work. Hey, Tanisha, recovered alcoholic. Hey, Tanisha. Um, I like to present this sponsorship medallion to a great guy that's in my life. I um, truthfully and honestly am just full of gratitude that you are here with me and we are able to do this thing together. Um, I've been completely transparent with Jesse. He's been completely transparent with me. Um, And come on. Come on up here. (laughs) I forgot exactly where we are in the book. They usually say that part, but we're reading the damn thing, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Grace. I love reading the damn thing. Is there anyone celebrating a year or more of sobriety that would like a medallion? All right. right. Is there anyone that is in need of a big book sponsor? Raise your hands. Anyone flying sponsorless? If you are too shy to raise your hands, feel free to grab one of those recovered members that you saw raise their hands earlier. And if you would like to become a member of this group, please join us afterwards to fill out a membership card. And I believe it's a business meeting tonight. It sure is. Can all home group members please raise your hands? This is exciting. And let's make sure we get the room taken down quickly so that we can get into our business. I like it. Uh, Thank you for joining us tonight. I hope to see you next week. Thursday evening is our Alcoholics and God Step Series workshop starting at 715 downstairs in the Fellowship Hall. And it's Pat R. Yeah, if you haven't heard Pat R. or even if you have heard him a couple dozen times, you hear him again, man. He's awesome. Pat R. is is just in the midst of a a really cool step series, and he's talking about the steps and God and recovery. And if you can't join us on Thursday, listen to it uh, online. Where can I I hear it? Uh, Alcoholicsandgod.org. Fantastic. Oh, love it. Uh, Please wait until you're 75 feet away from the front doors to... Light up your cigs or do your smoky dragon vape thing. Uh, I think we have privileged vapors can go out here on the balcony if they're helping to break down uh, the room and joining us for our business meeting. But otherwise, please be respectful of the church and their wishes uh, to keep the cigarettes far, far away. What do you think? Should we close with the Lord's Prayer? That is an amazing idea. All right. Let's have a moment of silence for the still sick and suffering. If we let him, who will bring us from shame to grace? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day, daily bread, forgive us our trespasses.
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go.
song is. God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye. I think you know this one, don't you?
Just won't say 